Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I am pleased to welcome Stephen Atwell, who is the author of People Must Live by Work, Direct Job Creation in America from FDR to Reagan from the University of Pennsylvania Press. Stephen, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So before we dive in and talk about the book, I wonder if you might tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do and how it is that you came to this particular project. Sure. So uh, I am an adjunct professor of public policy at uh, CUNY School for uh, Labor and Urban Studies. Uh, I uh, got my uh, PhD uh, in policy history at uh, the University of California, Santa Barbara. Um, so I sort of stand in the the um, intersection between public policy and uh, history. And uh, I was sort of inspired to do this project uh, really when I was an undergrad. Um, I was reading um, Arthur Schlesinger's The Coming of the New Deal, which is like the first seminal history of the New Deal. And he has this like little seven page chapter on a new deal agency called the civil works administration, which created more than 4 million jobs in less than three months. And like, I was looking at this on the page and, you know, it, it sort of uh, raised my eyebrows. And at the same time I was, you know, paying attention to the democratic primary debates in 2004. And, you know, each of the candidates were talking about, you know, we need to create jobs, we need to grow jobs, we need to build jobs. And, you know, uh, I would, as a, you know, budding policy wonk, I would go onto their websites and like look to see what the details of their plans were. And there were usually these like small pots of money for small business loans or tax credits to hire additional personnel. Uh, and you know, very, very small in relation to the economy. And I'm, I'm looking at this on the one hand and I'm, I'm looking at, you know, 4.27 million jobs in under three months and thinking like, wait a second, why are none of the candidates talking about this? Why wasn't I taught about this in school? Uh, why isn't this part of the political debate? And that's what sort of inspired the book project was in part a sort of, uh, attempt to recover um, this kind of forgotten tradition of economic and social policy. Terrific. So, so in uh, throughout the book, you 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 start off by making a distinction between public works uh, and direct job creation. Um, so why don't we just start there and sort of talk, just sort of give us the contours of, of the kinds of things that you're talking about. And when you talk about direct job creation as something that we need to be paying attention to uh, so that we understand what it is that you mean. Sure. So uh, traditional public works, you know, is what we think about uh, when we normally think about public works, that the government uh, wants to build something. Uh, it lets out a contract for bids by private contractors. 
contractors then make the bids. The government picks, you know, usually it's supposed to be the, the uh, lowest cost bid. But, you know, there's all kinds of like bid rigging and stuff that happens. And then a private contractor goes out and hires uh, uh, a crew, supposedly, and then they build the stuff. Um, and what direct job creation does is it sort of sidesteps that whole process and says, like, OK, why are we outsourcing the, the construction of this public good? You know, why don't we just hire people directly uh, usually from the unemployed, um, and have them build it without going through a third party. Uh, and and the reason for this is that you know traditional uh, public works you know processes are slow, right? It takes you know in some cases like years to go through the sort of you know or at least you know even during the New Deal months to like go through the, the bidding process and vet the bids and, you know, make sure that all the, the numbers add up right. Um, whereas, you know, the, um, civil works administration could just, you know, open up right away and start hiring people. Uh, another consideration was that traditional public works, uh, tended to not hire many people for, uh, a given amount of work. You know, you think about, um, you know, when, when you see, uh, you know, public construction going on, like, you know, someone's fixing a, a sidewalk or, or uh, uh, redoing a stretch of street or something like that, you see a lot of machinery and then very few people. Yeah. Uh, because, right, if you're a, a private contractor, you know, labor is a cost to you and machinery is an asset, right, that you already own or that you're renting. Uh, so, you know, it's to your advantage to use as much labor saving machinery as possible and as few workers as possible. And when it's the middle of the Great Depression and the whole point is to try to, you know, put people back to work, this sort of inefficient process of relying on contractors is something that, you know, various groups within the New Deal started to question. Um, and then the final thing has to do often with the, the objects being created. Um, you know, in, in the book, I talk about this a lot as sort of, um, the, the problem of what was called self-liquidation. So the, the reigning thought around public works, um, during the 1930s and, you know, arguably there's sort of elements of this way of thinking that survived today is that projects should generate revenue equal to the cost to build them. Right. So if you build a bridge, right, you put tolls on that bridge until it can pay back the the cost of the bonds to to build the bridge. Uh, and the problem is that really restricts what you can do. Right. There's all kinds of uh, social goods that don't necessarily generate fees. Um, and, you know, when especially you're trying to employ large numbers of people quickly if you re you know if your objective is to bring down the unemployment rate you want a lot of different kinds of projects you know you maybe want uh to put people to work in you know public health right or in um in doing surveys or in uh what the uh, new dealers called light construction so you know not building hoover dam but 
you know, building a new post office. Um, and those are things that don't necessarily generate the fees to, to pay back uh, the costs. And it's also, they started to, you know, in a, in a sort of, um, uh, you know, kind of proto Keynesian way, sort of say, well, why are we so concerned with paying back the costs? Isn't the more pressing objective to increase employment and stimulate the economy? So you're listening to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Stephen Atwell, and he is talking about his new book, People Must Live by Work, Direct Job Creation in America from FDR to Reagan. Uh, so Stephen, the book tells us a couple of different kinds of stories. One is, as you've made reference to this incredibly successful direct job creation effort in the 1930s, uh, and one you argue that has been vastly understated in terms of the effect that it had in that period. And then you tell a series of other stories about missed opportunities in later periods. So why don't we sort of start and and home in a little bit on the 1930s. What happened? What worked? Why? And what should we learn from it? So uh, what happened was that you had this kind of eclectic group of uh, reformers, social workers, um, civil engineers, statisticians, amateur social scientists uh, who got together in one of the New Deal agencies. It was the Federal Emergency Relief Administration. And what they wanted to do was kind of uh, create a revolution in social policy. You know, they were tasked with um, helping the poor. And they sort of said, you know, the way that we're doing things where – you know, people have to sign up for, you know, a pauper's oath to get this really, you know, insufficient amount of money a month. Um, it's not what people want. It's not actually dealing with the underlying problems in the economy. What if we gave people jobs instead? Because that's what they really want. Um, and, you know, one of the, the first kind of um, uh, research projects that I undertook as part of this book was I was looking at the intake records for the Civil Works Administration for New York City. And, you know, I could see the people from the New Deal reacting to these intake records. And they're sort of saying, you know, people want jobs. All of these unemployed people who are, you know, being described as, you know, lazy or improvident or, or what have you, you know, they all say, we don't want charity. You know, we want a job. Uh, you know, and they, they saw that, like, you know, for example, when they created the Civil Works Administration and there were, you know, put, you know, as I said, more than four million people to work, like more than seven million applied for these jobs. So they knew that the demand was there. And then, you know, when they started to sort of get their program going, uh, they started to build an economic theory and they sort of said, you know, wait a second, can't we do this for everybody? Uh, you know, just this is how we could actually fight the, the Great Depression and win. Um, and, you know, they then sort of pushed their ideas forward into a number of agencies. So first the Civil Works Administration, then the Works Progress Administration. Um, and what I argue they, they accomplished was to put direct job creation at the heart of the New Deal. So it's there in the plans for the Social Security system. It was supposed to be a safety net under the safety net. Um, and by the time that, you know, World War II kind of rolls around, um, the people running the programs uh, have all of these plans for a permanent system. 
you know, that this is going to be a part of the uh, sort of American uh, jobs state as well as the American welfare state. Um, and, you know, they've sort of point to like, look at what we've done. We've brought down unemployment by significant amounts and in the result created enormous amount of public infrastructure and public goods that we use in every county in America to the present day. So, so where do we go? I mean, if you think of sort of of worst of of the Great Depression in thirty two, thirty three, and then just prior to the onset of World War II, sort of what happens to the unemployment rate over that period? So this is uh, this is some of this kind of very wonkish, but the devil. I was going to say without getting us too much in yeah, the weeds as the, how we want to argue about how we calculate those. Well, numbers. but the devil is really is in the details because right. part of the reason why our public historical memory about the new deal is wrong is that we, you know, for 30 years, we were using the wrong set of data. Uh, so there weren't modern unemployment statistics, uh, during the great depression. We hadn't developed the, the methods that we use today, these sort of phone surveys of employers and employed. Um, so instead what we had are estimates that were made after the war. Uh, about what was unemployment like based on the figures that were available. And the economist who was hired to create these estimates, a guy called Stanley Lebergat, uh, made an assumption when he was putting together his uh, series of estimates that everyone who is employed in a New Deal jobs program should be counted as unemployed. And that makes the New Deal look a lot less effective than it really was. Uh, and when you hear, you know, uh, pundits uh, or, you know, talk about the New Deal as a failure or even when you look at, you know, modern history textbooks, they all use those numbers. Thirty years later, another economist uh, by the name of Michael Darby comes around and says, you know, that's insane. Like these people had paychecks. They showed up to work, you know, every day. If they didn't, they'd get fired. These were real jobs. Like if we're going to if we're going to count people who work for, you know, the treasury department or the forestry service as employed, right? Then we should count these people. And if you redo that, then instead of the new deal bringing the unemployment rate down from 25% to 14%, which is still, you know, that's an impressive accomplishment. It actually goes down to 9% by 1936. Um and then, you know, the same thing um, happens with that. Sorry, if I can yeah. just interrupt. I mean, it's, it's there are a couple of ways in which you know this is is important for for us today. Um, one is that that really does sort of serve still as an argument among certain sectors sectors of the right and certain historians that that point to right. It's not the New Deal that got us out of the Great Depression. It's World War II right. that got us out of the Great Depression, which is still a fairly even mainstream kind of kind of take. Oh, looking at those 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 better numbers that I think it's fair to say are, are pretty widely accepted among most economists as the right ones for us to look at really do in fact point to uh, some profound successes of that period. World War II really does then give us what is essentially a full employment program and bring that down uh, very close to yeah. zero indeed. And- but that becomes important. The other thing that I just sort of want to highlight for folks who are listening in is that sort of using that earlier data set uh, for me has some of the same problems that looking at the contemporary poverty definition. Exactly. Yeah, that's very, very, right? 
the official poverty measure doesn't count the effects of things like food stamps, for example. So if you look at official poverty measures, you don't see as dramatic a decline in the poverty rate from the war on poverty period through to the present, because it is by definition not counting the things that could in fact uh, reduce poverty. Likewise, if you're if you're falling into the trap of using that old data set and looking at those old numbers of, of the New Deal, you are defining out the effects of these massive interventions by the public sector in order to reduce unemployment and, and missing the fact that they succeeded in some pretty profound ways. Yeah. So, you know, uh, just to bring it forward to the the World War II point, right? Uh, it really matters, you know, that um, unemployment was at six percent um, when the U.S. entered World War II, instead of like ten percent um, or eleven percent. You know that, you know, one of those makes it look like you know we're still in the midst of the Great Depression, uh, but six percent is, you know, historically speaking, like fairly average. Uh, unemployment. It's not that the New Deal like ended unemployment forever. What you sort of have was a, I argue, a two-stage thing that like the New Deal ended the Great Depression, and then the war brought us to full employment. Um, and then the sort of the second half of my book is trying to explain why, like after having succeeded, right? You know, ending the Great Depression, and then you know. World War II proving that, like, you could go one step further, right? If the government just hires, you know, 10 million people in, you know, the armed services and the the um, defense industries, you know, and puts them to work, uh, that you can get almost, you know, zero unemployment. Uh, why is it that we then turn away from this? So let's so let's let's so let's let's go there. Um, if you're just joining us, uh, you're listening to the News Book Network. I'm Stephen Pimber, host of the Public Policy Channel, and we're talking to Stephen Atwell, author of "People Must Live by Work," about his new book about uh, direct job creation. So. Um, as you've just alluded to, right, throughout the book, the rest of the book, you're looking at a period in the 1940s, a period in the 1960s, and then a period in the 1970s, in which direct job creation is to varying degrees back on the table, or at least near the table. But in each of those instances, it ultimately fails and sort of doesn't learn the kinds of lessons that you're articulating about the 1930s. So I want to ask if you could maybe step back and think about sort of those three case studies together or those three periods together, is there, are there general patterns, right? Sort of, as, is there a general way for us to think about what went wrong as we think about current debates uh, uh, between things like a UBI, a universal basic income, and a jobs guarantee? So I'm wondering if you can sort of pull out or tease out what you take away as lessons from those periods about maybe what should be done or should not be done if we are interested in those kinds of policies for today. Sure. So one common theme that I see uh, in in the 1940s and the 1960s and 1970s is the extremely powerful role of economists in shaping the debate. And in many cases, the dangers of uh, sort of what I call sort of technocratic overconfidence that, you know, in immediately after World War II, right, we have this bill that comes, you know, before Congress uh, called originally the full employment bill. And it's supposed to establish full employment as the like foundation of American economic policy. And the question is, well, how do you achieve it? Right. You've got this new deal model, um, you know, 
you've you've shown that it works. But there were a lot of people within the, you know, sort of liberal wing of the Democratic Party. And that was kind of the surprising thing for me is this wasn't a story of like evil conservatives, you know, uh, defeating this good bill. It was like liberal sabotaging themselves because of kind of extreme confidence in uh, planning that they didn't need the new deal because, you know, this new economic theory of Keynesianism meant that they could do everything on autopilot, that all you had to do was adjust interest rates, you know, here and there, adjust, um, you know, inflation here or there, adjust taxation, uh, and that would produce this kind of politics-free uh, economic policy, that there wouldn't need to be the sort of raucous, um, you know, uh, contentious politics of the New Deal era with, you know, uh, all of these social movements in the streets and, you know, big fights with, you know, the, the you know, uh, corporations and the wealthy and, you know, all that kind of like populist uh, conflict. Um, and and do you, sorry, do you think that part of what's going on here is also just the context that we're sort of at the height of the Cold War? Uh, well, ironically, this is right before the Cold War. Certainly not in 46. Yeah, yeah. like 45, 46, a lot of the things that had, you know, uh, will kick off the Cold War have not yet happened. It's sort of in this really interesting interstitial moment. Um I, I do think that the Cold War is involved in, in a certain way, which is that there is a desire not to seem too statist. Um, certainly there is, you know, conservatives are saying this is all communism, right? But then again, they said the same thing about, like, the Social Security Act. Um, you know, so that's not necessarily a winning uh, strategy, but what you sort of see that's kind of interesting is like liberals preemptively conceding on that point. Um, they go out of their way to say this is not a new, uh, you know, another WPA. Um, you know, we believe in uh, full employment in a free, you know, in a free market economy. Um, and what's kind of ironic is that like in their attempt to to sanitize this to make it non controversial they open themselves up for attack that conservatives say, Oh, well then you're not actually guaranteeing anybody a job, right? If all this is like, you know, going to be some, some, uh, you know, pointy headed, uh, expert, you know, fiddling with, with numbers and no one actually has like, you know, a direct right to a job. Um, and on the other side, they then attack the, the, the whole idea of expertise. They say that like Keynesianism is this foreign economic theory. It's pseudo communist itself. Um, you know, it's gobbledygook. We don't know if it's going to work. And the problem is that the public in the 1940s really wanted full employment, believed in it, but we're not super confident about planning like that, that liberals for, for, you know, their own reasons sort of, decided to fight on the terrain where their natural supporters weren't with them and abandoned the terrain. You know, if, uh, if you look at public opinion polls from the time, people were generally in favor of like, okay, if we need another WPA, let's do it. 
Um, yeah. Winds up something like, I mean, an awfully familiar story, doesn't it? You've got the the Democrats in some ways arguing against themselves and scaling back their preferred policies in order to appeal to centrists and to the right. And not getting and that support from centrists. Exactly, right? right? Sort of alienating some of their core supporters and in the process creating a weaker policy that makes it easier to point to it and say, well, that's not going to do the job anyway. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know. One of the the lessons is definitely like don't negotiate with yourself. Um, the other lesson is like to be very careful about like blindly trusting the smart guys in the room because yeah. you know sometimes they're they're uh, well. First of all, you have to make sure that you've really got like a broad base, you know, of opinion that you're not taking a narrow slice. You know, I mean, if you look at economics today, right all of the top economic schools are representative of a fairly narrow band of thought within their discipline that, you know, there's this whole division between orthodox and and heterodox economists. Well, if you only hire people from, you know, Harvard and MIT, you're, you're getting a a relatively narrow, um, you know, worldview about like what's possible and what's not. Um, and you see this again and again. So in during the 1960s, the war on poverty, um, there's this whole question about like, are you going to have jobs programs? Um, and, you know, the, you know, liberal Keynesians in the Council of Economic Advisors, people like uh, Walter Heller, think that they've solved the economy with this Keynesian tax cut, right? That now there's going to be in full employment, um, you know, and all we have to do is eliminate discrimination and provide supplemental, uh, education and training to the poor. And then we'll just lift everyone up into this perfect economy. Um, so there's no need once again for like these jobs programs. Um, and then, you know, when people realize that like, oh, you know, institutional racial discrimination is actually a little bit more difficult to deal with. Um, than we thought, you know, let's actually go and create some jobs programs. Well, now the Keynesians turn around and say, well, hang on a second. Uh, we can't spend any more money on the war on poverty because, you know, inflation is starting to kick in. We've got this whole war in Vietnam. Uh, we can't do both. And so, you know, once again, you kind of get to this point where you're, you're fighting with yourself, right? That, you know, you're starting to get the uh, labor department and the office of economic opportunity calling for jobs programs saying like, Hey, poverty is like a real material problem. It's not just that like the poor are, you know, uh, depraved on account of their deprived as, as West side story puts it like that, you know, we need, there's a poverty gap of money and we need to fill that with jobs. Um, but by that point, like, you know, the Johnson administration is fighting with itself and it loses its opportunity, right? The 1966 midterms come and go, and now there's no more working majority in Congress. So, sorry, I was just going to say, so bring us forward uh, to the the final period that, that you talk about. And, and, and tell me if there are any other lessons in the 70s other than don't elect Jimmy Carter to be president. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's a big one. So... What happens in the 70s is that you get the worst 
recession since the Great Depression up until that point. You know, it runs from 1973 to 1975. Unemployment's at 10%. You know, it's real bad. Um, And this actually creates enough of a crisis that direct job creation gets back into government. So there's this program created in 1973, the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, CETA. And it puts, you know, um, 750,000 people to work. Now, that's nowhere near as big as the New Deal jobs programs, but it's still not nothing. And what it does is it changes um, the priorities of various departments in the government. So the Labor Department in the 1970s, their primary um, activity was running jobs programs, right? It's like what most of their staffers are doing. It's what most of their budget is geared towards. And that starts to recreate the capacity for thinking about direct job creation that had been lost when the New Deal jobs programs went away in the early 1940s. So they're sort of, they've reinvented the wheel by this point. Um, Then what you have happen is this kind of failed synthesis between Congress and the presidency. So you've got, you know, the um, sort of the liberal wing and the uh, civil rights wing of the Democratic Party in Hubert Humphrey and Augustus Hawkins come together to create this bill called the Humphrey Hawkins Act, which is going to create uh, a right to a job through direct job creation. And then, you know, Jimmy Carter um, is nominated (laughs) to be uh, the Democratic presidential candidate, and he uh, endorses the Humphrey Hawkins bill, somewhat tepidly, but he does endorse it. However, once he becomes president, he says, you know, I'm going to come up with my own plan. And he creates this thing called the Project for Better Jobs and Income. Essentially stopping all the work that's already going on in Congress around Humphrey Hawkins, right? Exactly. Delaying even like negotiations for about nine months, right? And, you know, nine months is a lifetime in an American presidency. You know, the the honeymoon is not that long. Um, And he sort of blows up the process, That, you know, the project for better jobs and income becomes this clash between and, you know, you see this throughout the the Carter administration, the left and the right of the Democratic Party, where the left wants these, you know, to actually fulfill these promises for ambitious social and economic programs uh, that they campaigned on. And the right of the party is now more worried about inflation. And they say any spending is going to lead to hyperinflation, right? You know, we're going to become Weimar Germany. We're going to become Zimbabwe. Um, You know, although Zimbabwe hadn't really become the sort of symbol that it is today. Um, So the fight on Project for Better Jobs and Income becomes this like weird mishmash that pleases nobody, where they've been tasked with coming up with a program that will, you know, provide jobs for the unemployed, a living wage for the working poor, and a guaranteed, you know, um, uh, above poverty income for people who can't work. And it's also committed to not spending any more money. And those are like incompatible positions. And by the time that that debacle sort of falls apart, it's now nine months down the road and you haven't yet started talking to Congress. And then the problem is that Jimmy Carter 
decides to appoint as the lead negotiator with Humphrey and Hawkins, this guy called Charles Schultz, who had testified against the Humphrey Hawkins Act in 1976, because once again, sort of uh, economists take center stage, which is uh, Keynesian economics cracks apart in the 1970s, that the, the heart of what was called the neoclassical synthesis between, you know, Keynes's original ideas and neoclassical economics, this idea of the Phillips curve, that there was like a stable relationship between uh, employment and inflation uh, falls apart because you get stagflation, right? You get uh, economic stagnation and inflation at the same time, which their theory said couldn't happen. And this causes economists to like, it's almost the the mirror opposite of the 1940 story. They lose all confidence. They have a crisis of confidence, and now they, you know, the the sentiment is like we don't know how much inflation will be caused by a given amount of spending. So let's just not do anything. It's like total paralysis. Um, and the problem is that like economists are are really influential, right? During the debates. In Congress in 1976, the fact that economists, you know, on the left were disagreeing with one another um, caused a lot of uh, Democratic congressmen to get cold feet, which is why they kicked it uh, down the road to 1977. Likewise, you know, the fact that the uh, Charles Schultz is, you know, named as the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors means that he can lead all of these major departments, the CEA. Uh, Treasury, OMB, commerce in opposition. So that now, like, you've got a war within the administration and that the administration's negotiations are being led by someone who's completely opposed to the idea of uh, direct job creation altogether. And so the Humphrey Hawkins Act basically gets turned into a paper tiger that they jettison the you know, the heart of the bill, right? The, the actual right to a job embodied in a government jobs program, uh, in favor of these sort of, uh, you know, targets for unemployment that the president is supposed to develop a plan for and communicate to Congress. And even as they've like reduced it to a paper tiger, you still have Charles Schultz working behind the scenes to first try to, torpedo the bill with poison pill amendments. And then when that doesn't work, like working with uh, the office of legal counsel to figure out how can we legally not enforce this law? And that's, you know, at that's sort of where time runs out because, you know, the, the victory of the right in the, the Carter administration leads to the appointment of Paul Volcker as chairman of the federal reserve who promptly engineers a recession in 1980 to deal with inflation. And that hands the presidency over to Ronald Reagan and Reagan, you know, hates government job programs, right? His whole philosophy is that, you know, government is the problem, not the solution. And that was the sort of the last major opportunity uh, for direct job creation in the 20th century. 
This is the New Books Network. You've been listening to Stephen Atwell talk about his new book, People Must Live by Work, Direct Job Creation in America from FDR to Reagan. Uh, so in the last few minutes, Stephen, bring us bring us up to the present. So that really, that was that was the the last moment, I think it is fair to say, when you've got serious, uh, when, when direct job creation of that kind of, of scale or job guarantee for that matter was sort of seriously on the agenda. Uh, but it seems to me that there is growing discussion among a broader and broader segment of the Democratic Party, I would argue, around things like universal basic income on the one hand and a jobs guarantee on the other. In our last few minutes, can you can you sort of offer your thoughts, having, having immersed yourself in this history, what's your read on the present moment and what you think the likelihood is that we can recommit to, to something on the scale of of the 1930s so uh flash forward from 1978 to april of last year when all of a sudden like half of the major uh candidates for the democratic presidential nomination in 2020 all of a sudden announced that they are uh coming up with job guarantee proposals and then you know later right uh uh alexandria ocasio-cortez uh, gets elected to Congress and all of a sudden everyone's talking about a green new deal. Um, so all of a sudden, like, yeah, this, this, uh, sort of what I used to joke was like a dead language is once again at the fore of, uh, democratic politics because of essentially the great recession, right. That we, we once again had this, you know, enormous economic, uh, catastrophe and the sort of traditional methods that we use to fight recessions didn't work that great, right? I mean, it was like, you know, if you look at what the Obama administration did, it was the first real uh, genuine kind of Keynesian economic policy since uh, the 1970s. But it still was, you know, it the stimulus bill was not as big as it should have been. Uh, we didn't actually do like direct job creation. And it took a long time for unemployment rates to come down. Uh, and you know, one of the things like when I was, um, writing the book and like arguing with people about the, you know, did the new deal and the great depression, I would sort of turn around and say, look, you know, if, if Obama had been able to like bring down unemployment as fast as FDR did in his first term, like the tea party wouldn't have happened. Right. You know, because unemployment would have dropped, you know, to 5%. <laughs> and, you know, we'd all be talking about like, oh, okay, you know, we, we fixed it. Uh, and there wouldn't be that sort of like, you know, slow, slow chipping away. I mean, to state the obvious, Obama's Democratic coalition was not FDR's Democratic coalition. Um, no, it, you know, uh, the size of the majority, if nothing else, was radically different. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, <laughs> I think the tricky thing is that like, he had the bad luck to become president when the recession just started. Whereas FDR had the somewhat sort of ambivalent luck of coming in when things were at their worst. Already on, on the decline, although we, he didn't know it at the time. Yeah. But yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so, so bring us back to, so what's the, the lesson is, do you, I mean, do you, are you seeing that our economic circumstances changing what the party is willing to do? Is that sort of where you're going? Yeah, I, I think basically the, you know, there's sort of a generational experience that like, you know, there's a certain generation of Democrats who like 
saw the sort of free market as like wildly successful in the 1990s, right? And then there's a, a generation who graduated college uh, in the worst recession imaginable and have had their like, you know, careers blighted as a result, right? Who, you know, who thought that like a college education was going to get them economic security and it didn't. And those are the people who like joined Occupy Wall Street. And those are the people who went out and volunteered for Obama. And like, those are the people who are now like, you know, volunteering for uh, Ocasio-Cortez or joining Justice Democrats or the Sunrise Movement or Democratic Socialists of America. Like that's another sign of of the political wind shifting. Um, so I, I think there's sort of three main lessons uh, that we should apply to like modern proposals for uh, a job guarantee or a Green New Deal. Uh, and this is something that I'm, I'm, I'm working on an uh, article about. Um, to sort of get into the, the weeds, but here are the three main lessons. Number one, methods of organization matter, right? Going all the way back to the, the public works versus direct job creation. It needs the, these jobs need to be public, not private. Um, the Rokahana's, uh, job guarantee bill, for example, is a, basically a subsidy for private employers. You need the government to do it itself to actually know that you've created the jobs that you set out to create. Um, you can't sort of rely on, on employers necessarily. Um, the likewise, it needs to be federal, not state or local. Um, a lot of the proposals, Cory Booker's plan, for example, uh, some of the big think tank plans, uh, CBPP, the Levy Institute want to run this through state and local government. Well, if you look at what happened with CETA in the 1970s, part of the reason why CETA ran into trouble is that uh, it was run at a state and local level at a time in which, because there's a big economic recession, these state and local governments have massive deficits and they can't deficit spend. Yep. So the temptation is to backfill their own cuts with CETA jobs, which means on the one hand, you're not creating net new jobs, right? Because you're just uh, you know, backfilling jobs that otherwise would have been lost. And the second thing is that all of a sudden you get into a, a big fight with labor unions who are seeing this as like, hey, you know, you're firing our members and then hiring people at a cheaper wage. Like, what the fuck? And so you're like you're 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 antagonizing one of your most loyal allies on this issue. So keep it keep it, don't don't contract it out. Keep it uh, directly under control and keep it at the federal level, not at the state level. Yeah, I mean, especially you know, uh, in the wake of like what happened with the Affordable Care Act, right? We see what happens when you you have the states run these programs. Any state run by a Republican is going to like not participate or like try to sabotage it. Um, the second thing is that scale and scope really matter that direct job creation needs to be big enough in relation to the size of the problem to have a real impact. Like Cory Booker's plan, which creates basically like these experiments, right? Where you like pick 15 cities. That's not really going to have the kind of impact that you need because you're trying to affect a national labor market. So you need to be big enough in relation to the size of the unemployed. Um, now granted, you know, right now we have a fairly low unemployment rate, which is great, but like, no one think that that's going to last forever. So like when the next recession comes, we need to make sure that like, we're not talking about a few, you know, thousand jobs here or there. We're talking about like, okay, you know, we've got an unemployment rate of like 
you know, 10 million. Okay. Put 5 million to work. Like it's gotta be big enough to really bring that rate down by itself, but also shock the way that people think, right? Change so people's it, expectations. Make it, federal, make it big. And then what's the final lesson? The final one is there's going to be conflict with this within the center left. And we have to be ready for it. That like, you know, direct job creation is never going to happen when Republicans run the government. That's just like, it, it's, it's not even part of the equation. So it's going to only happen when Democrats control the government, but that means that there's going to be conflict. So, you know, direct job creation scares the hell out of some people for different reasons. It does involve more spending. Uh, and there's like, you know, sort of budget, you know, people who call themselves socially liberal, but fiscally conservative, they tend to freak out about that. Um, we're going to have to have arguments and there's some very useful ongoing arguments. Uh, if you, if you sort of been paying attention to like the modern monetary theorists, uh, fighting over the whole idea of like, do you actually have to pay for it? Uh, when, you know, Republicans pass massive tax cuts or massive military spending without paying for it. Like, why is it that Democrats think that we have to, uh, you know, make sure that like every nickel and dime is accounted for on our plans. Um, another thing it bypasses traditional stakeholders like these private contractors. Um, you know, you might not, uh, believe it, but there is an anti what's called force account. That's another term for direct job creation. There is an anti force account watchdog group today. Like it's got a website and it's funded by the like national association of private contractors. So like there's a lot of uh you know and private contractors donate a lot of money in in politics. So like we're going to have to be ready for that fight. Um it also kind of causes conflict because like there's a lot of powerful semi-conscious ideas about like well you can't have no unemployment. Um like you know we we think of unemployment as like uh-oh what if you know what if that means that you know wages increase too much, right? The Federal Reserve gets very antsy about that. Um, but also there's these subconscious ideas or semi-conscious ideas about the worth of unemployed workers, right? That there's this like default assumption that these people are not useful are not worthwhile that, you know, they, you know, I mean, hell, there's a lot of talk about how, you know, people who work at minimum wage have no value, right? And those are people who are employed. The reality is the unemployed in America are this enormous store of labor power that goes unused and every day that they're unemployed is billions and billions of dollars that we can never get back it's a little bit like the shutdown in that way we have been speaking with Stephen Atwell about his new book, People Must Live by Work, Direct Job Direct Job Creation in America from FDR to Reagan from University of Pennsylvania Press. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for your insight, for telling us a little bit about that history and bringing it up to the present. Thank you so much. My pleasure.